0: Author and preacher A.W. Tozer once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I was reading uh, this week in the New Testament book of 1 John, and the Apostle John in this great letter doesn't start from the premise of what we might like from God but he starts with a declaration of what God is like. And so I invite you to hear his words as we begin worship today. This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you, God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we're living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. God's light is so bright that there is no darkness in him. You know, these dark days of winter are tough on a lot of us, especially if you have seasonal affective disorder. But we serve a God in whom there is no darkness. So no matter what you may be feeling today as you come into this place, no matter what you may be going through emotionally, if we focus on the Lord, we can live in the light. Let's pray together. God of light, awaken us today to the glory of your presence among us. Shine on us in such a way that the darkness without and the darkness within may be pushed back so that we may truly see what is real. Help us to recognize our sin for what it is. Enable us to see the world as you created it to be, as you created us to be. Empower us to move from darkness to light, from sin to new life. And may your light within us shine through our worship today. We pray in the name of the one who is the word made flesh, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We're in the third week of this new teaching series called Living in Hope, and we're walking our way through the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to some new believers in the ancient city of Thessalonica. Today we're moving into chapter two and just the first six verses. But Paul's words here are packed with meaning. He's giving these young Christ followers some instruction on how to live with integrity. Now, integrity is a word that we hear almost every day, but it's not a word that, a lot, that, that, we, uh, that people spend a lot of time thinking about. If we try to define it, what would you say? According to the dictionary, integrity is a firm adherence to a code of moral or artistic values. To put it another way, the root of integrity is about doing the right thing, even when it's not acknowledged by others, even when it's not convenient. See, an individual with integrity is the antidote to self-interest. There are countless examples of what integrity should look like in everyday life, uh, and yet we so seldom see it acted out in our daily lives because of greed, because of self-interest, and Those things pervade our culture. Today, we're going to be asking the question, how can the church be more effective? How can we be agents of change in people's lives? How can we best impact the next generation with the good news of God's love? In a few moments, we'll discover four answers to those questions from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Let's pray together. Gracious God who gives to all who ask, provide for each of us today who are gathered in this place. Bless your people as we worship you. God, you've told us that you will reveal yourself to those who seek you. So we pray that you would show us yourself and plant deep within us a desire to know you more. So help us to step forward into your gracious presence, knowing that if we seek you, we will find you. Lord, stir us up so that we don't become too self-satisfied and forget to keep asking and keep seeking and keep knocking. Give us faith to understand that through our prayers we can accomplish great things if we believe. And we pray all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. There is a cemetery outside of Florence, Alabama, near the remains of a mansion called Forks of Cypress, built in the 1820s by James Jackson, an early settler of northwest Alabama. The Jackson Family Cemetery today is located in a densely wooded area about a quarter of a mile from the house, and there's no sign marking the spot, only a five-foot-high stone wall surrounding about 50 graves. Inside, there is a tall marker over James Jackson's grave with a long uh, inscription extolling his virtues. And on the marker for one of his sons, William Moore Jackson, there is his name, the dates 1824 to 1891, and this simple five-word epitaph, a man of unquestioned integrity. A man of unquestioned integrity. Five words to sum up an entire life. I can't think of a better tribute, can you? The dictionary uses words like whole and complete to describe what integrity means. And to borrow a modern expression, a person with integrity has their act together. There are no loose ends to threaten their reputation. Pastor and author Warren Wearsby offers this definition Integrity is to personal and corporate character what health is to the body, or 2020 vision is to the eyes. A person with integrity is not divided, that would be duplicity. And they are not merely pretending, that would be hypocrisy. He or she is whole, life is put together. Things are working harmoniously. People with integrity have nothing to hide and nothing to fear. Their lives are an open book. Many would say that we have an integrity crisis in our society today, and I'm inclined to agree. Americans are not only deeply divided, we sometimes don't know who to even trust. But how does that apply to the church? I believe that, not, uh, that only a ministry and a congregation with integrity will stand the test of time. Everything else fades away. Fads come and go. Glitz will attract people for a time, but it won't hold them. Good programs lose their appeal. New buildings grow old. Pastors and people stay for a while and then leave. But you know, integrity never goes out of style. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 has sometimes been called a minister's manual, and it is that and so much more. But why? Well, we all know that leadership is difficult, and we know that good leaders are hard to find. It's true in society, it's true in politics, and it's true even in the church. There are all kinds of evidence that the church has a shortage of strong, capable leaders, and even more than that, of godly leaders. So how can the church be more effective? How can we be agents of change in people's lives today? How can we impact the next generation? Acts chapter 17 verse 6 says that Paul and Silas turned the world upside down. How did they do that? What was their secret? Well, we find four answers in our text today from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And the first is that Paul and Silas preached the gospel in spite of strong opposition. Look at verses 1 and 2. You yourselves know, dear brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure, you know how boldly we had been treated, or how badly we had been treated at Philippi just before we came to you, and how much we suffered there. And yet our God gave us the courage to declare his good news to you boldly, in spite of great opposition. Someone once said, "The door of opportunity swings on the hinges of opposition." And Paul certainly found that to be true in Thessalonica. In Acts chapter 16, we read that Paul and Silas had been stripped and beaten and jailed in the city of Philippi. And only through a miracle, a midnight earthquake freed them. They left after the the city authorities begged them to, to go, fearing civic unrest and maybe even another act of God. And when they arrived in Thessalonica, things weren't much better. They were forced to leave the city much earlier than they had planned. What was Paul's response to all of this? He says, our God gave us the courage to declare his good news to you boldly in spite of great opposition. You see, gospel ministry is rarely popular for every person who receives us gladly, many more will have nothing to do with us. And if we're waiting to win the world by acclamation, it's never going to happen. Jesus warned us, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. Sooner or later, those words will come true for every single servant of God. So what are we to do in the face of opposition and indifference? I believe that we can do three things. We can refuse to be intimidated, we can keep on praying, and we can keep on keeping on. Paul just kept on preaching. If they listened, that was good. If they didn't, that was too bad. If they opposed him, he didn't stop. And if they attacked him, he just kept going. See, sometimes the best thing we can do is to keep doing what we're already doing whether anyone pays attention to it or not and if we keep doing the right things long enough sooner or later it will pay off someone has said that the real measure of a person is what it takes to stop you you see we all want to be witnesses for jesus christ we truly want to make an impact with our lives in the world but the people who make a real difference in the world depend so much on god that they're rarely fazed by the opposition. Secondly, Paul and Silas spoke the truth with integrity. Verses 3 and 4. So you can see we were not preaching with any deceit or impure motives or trickery, for we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our heart. Notice what Paul says in these verses. Our message is true, not from error. Our message is pure, not from impure motives. Our message is honest. We're not trying to trick you. And our message is trustworthy because we've been entrusted with the gospel. We can understand these statements better when we consider the spiritual condition of the ancient world. One author summed it up this way. There has probably never been such a variety of religious cults and philosophic systems as there was in Paul's day. East and West had been united and intermingled to produce a mixture of real piety, high moral principles, crude superstition, and local gods and gross license, oriental mysteries and Greek philosophies and pagan culture competed for favor under the tolerant protection of Roman indifference. Holy men of all creeds and countries, popular philosophers, magicians, astrologers, crackpots, cranks, the sincere and the counterfeit, the righteous and the rascals, The swindlers and the saints jostled and clamored for the attention of the credulous and the skeptical. See, in light of all of these conditions, Paul stresses his moral integrity. When he says that his message did not come from error, he is highlighting the truth of the Christian faith. He's not spreading falsehoods. He's not spreading aimless speculation. When he says that his message does not come from impurity, he means that he's not using the gospel as a cover for sexual immorality. Now the word for trickery comes from the waterfront. It means to bait the hook. Paul did not use his preaching as a come on to entice the Thessalonians into following him or to giving him money. He was not running some kind of religious shell game like a sideshow huckster at a carnival. When he says that he has been entrusted with the gospel, he is emphasizing the high honor that God has given him to preach the word. As a sacred trust, it required the highest moral and ethical standards. Many would say today that America is in trouble. We have lost our way as a nation. Some even believe that America is already under God's judgment. If you need to be convinced of that, I encourage you to just read the daily headlines. In so many ways, we have lost our way morally and spiritually. No wonder our nation is uh, torn into competing factions. No wonder we don't trust our leadership. No wonder we can't get along No wonder so many issues divide us. When we turn away from God, a nation ends up with total moral anarchy. And some believe that we aren't far from that. We are seeing Romans chapter one coming true before our eyes. But in times like these, it's not enough just to speak the truth. We have to back it up with our godly life. Unbelievers understand that. That's why the cause of Christ is hurt so badly when televangelists fall into sin and clergy and priests turn out to be abusers and hypocrites. You see, people expect more from those who claim to represent God. They hold us to a higher standard, whether we like it or not. Paul says that God approved him to preach the gospel. Could God say that about you? Could God say that about your life? Could God place his stamp of approval on your life? Paul answered yes, unequivocally. And then third, Paul and Silas refused all trickery. Look at verse five. Never once did we try to win you with flattery, as as, as you well know, and God is our witness that we were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. In verse five, Paul discusses the methods that he uses to reach people. And once again, he states it in the negative. We never used flattery. We didn't put a mask on to cover up our greed. The word flattery means to make a favorable impression for a selfish purpose. And it touches on things like insincere compliments or praise that's given that we really don't mean or using emotional manipulation or insincerity as a matter of policy. By contrast, Paul was a plain-spoken kind of guy. He said what he meant, he meant what he said. You never had to wonder, I wonder what he meant by that. If he was pleased, he told you so. If he wasn't, he said so. In the vernacular, he was a straight shooter. See, a person puts on a mask to cover up their real intentions, like an actor wearing a mask. You and I both know people in our lives who appear to be one thing on the surface, while in fact they are something else entirely. They say and do things that appear to be generous, maybe even magnanimous, to gain a personal advantage. Maybe it's a bigger paycheck, or a bonus, or a pat on the back, or an award, or a new contract, or a big sale, or a new account, or a better office, or a new job, but All the while, under that pretense, there is this other personality. See, surveys tell us that the number one complaint that unchurched people have about the church is that we're just after their money. That's nothing new. They made the same complaint against the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago. But the answer is always the same. In my mind, come check us out. Look at the way we live, look at our lifestyle. You know, one of the things I was thinking about this week is some of our missionaries that we support. Check out, these pe—these peop- are people who could have made a lot more money not being a missionary, and yet they go to the ends of the earth, they learn a new language, they enter a new culture, they live among people who aren't always happy to see them, and they do it gladly, and they do it without complaining, So if you want to see what an authentic Christ follower looks like, check out their life. Fourth, Paul and Silas sought praise from God alone. Verse 6, as for human praise, we have never sought it from you or anyone else. Now this goes to the question of motive. What made them act this way? Paul uses a word that means to eagerly seek. And that's the key. It's not not wrong to receive praise from people, especially for a job well done. Good work ought to be praised. However, it is wrong to do our work solely or even mostly for the praise of other people. We don't need some kind of spiritual PR department to make us feel better about ourselves. What we should want and what we seek after is the praise of Almighty God. In verse 4, Paul spoke of not pleasing people, but pleasing God. So let's set up the, let me set up a comparison of those two ideas for just a moment. You see, a people pleaser refuses to speak the hard truth. A God pleaser is willing to speak the hard truth whenever necessary. A people pleaser says what people want to hear. A God pleaser says what people need to hear. A people pleaser flip-flops on the crucial issues. A God pleaser is consistent all the time. A people pleaser is obedient when it's convenient. A God pleaser is obedient even when it hurts. A people pleaser tells the truth some of the time. A God pleaser tells the truth all the time. You see where this is going? Let's suppose you've been feeling sick lately. And you go to the doctor and he administers a test and the results are not good. The outlook outlook could be grim, but the condition is treatable if you start now. What do you want the doctor to say to you? If he tells you the truth, you'll be devastated for the moment. If he doesn't, you won't be long for this world. Would you rather have the doctor sugarcoat the truth and even li- or even lie to you? Or do you want to know the whole truth about your condition? I know what my answer would be. I want to know the whole truth. But you see, when life and death issues for us are at stake, only the truth will do. When it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the stakes couldn't be any higher. Christ followers, each of us, must be people who hold to the highest possible standards of truth and integrity all the time. Let me close this morning by reminding us that hard times are already upon us. Christians around the world are attacked daily for their faith. You know, for a long time, we thought that troubles would be somewhere there, over there, maybe on the other side of the world someplace. But as things have changed in the West, our culture has gotten more and more hostile to the Christian faith. Just pay attention to the number of news stories almost daily where the Christian faith is under attack in one form or another. And we shouldn't be surprised by that because in Matthew chapter 10, verse 6, Jesus said that this would happen. He said, we are sent out every day like sheep, among wolves. Think of that image. Given today's spiritual climate, many people think it's better to keep your head down and say nothing about your faith, but we don't have that option as Christ followers. Sooner or later, we're all going to have to take a stand for our faith. And perhaps the most encouraging thing about Paul's defense of his ministry is what he didn't say. After suffering so much persecution, he doesn't say, well, I see now that I need to change my message if I'm going to be more effective at reaching new generations of people. He doesn't say, I need to understand the felt needs of the Thessalonians a little better before I decide what I'm going to preach this week. He didn't say, I've got to stop telling them that idol worship is bad. They're going to get turned off. People are gonna think that I'm just a troublemaker. No, Paul stood his ground. He didn't back down, he kept preaching the gospel, and may God help us to do the same. Let me go back for a moment to the forgotten tombstone in Florence, Alabama. In those five simple words, a man of unquestioned integrity. You know, you could say that about the Apostle Paul. He preached the gospel in spite of strong opposition. He spoke the truth with integrity. He refused trickery. He sought praise from God alone. And what a terrific testimony that is. It's a worthy goal for all of us. You know, the familiar hymn of the church, one of my favorites, Be Thou My Vision, which we sang just a bit ago, sums up Paul's approach to ministry. And there's one verse that we didn't sing this morning that says, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou, my inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. See, no wonder they could, people could say of Paul and Silas, Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world. And now they are here disturbing our city. You know what? That's impact. That's why we're still talking about Paul's ministry some 2,000 years later. But how can I say that Paul was a person of unquestioned integrity when his opponents seemed to question everything he did? Well, the answer is simple. People can say whatever they want. We can't stop others from lying about us. If we stand for Christ in these troubled times, we're bound to be criticized by somebody. Paul nowhere tried to silence his critics. He simply said, hey, look at my life. That's all the proof you need. Integrity means living with nothing hidden because we have nothing to hide. Let people say what they will. We can't stop our critics, but we can make sure that that doesn't stick to us. Don't worry about your critics. Focus on pleasing the Lord. Just do the right thing. Abraham Lincoln said it this way, he said, if I were to try to read, much less answer, all the attacks made on me, this shop might as well be closed for any other business. I do the very best I know how, the very best I can, and I mean to keep doing that until the end. If the end brings me out all right, what's said against me won't amount to anything. If the end brings me out wrong, Even 10,000 angels swearing I was right wouldn't make any difference. See, if we live to please the Lord, in the end it won't matter what our critics say about us. Earlier I passed over one little comment that may in fact be the key to Paul's ministry. Paul said, our God gave us the courage to declare his good news to you boldly. When we have a firm grip on God, and God has a firm grip on us, we can be bold in our faith. Why be afraid when God is on our side? Get to know the Lord, rest in him. We don't build our ministry and then add God. We build our ministry on the rock called Jesus Christ. And we let our ministry rest on that foundation. And when we start with God, no one will have to tell us to be bold. We'll just be bold, and the world will wonder where our courage comes from. Pray with me, will you? Lord Jesus, help us today to live the truth. To live the truth, and not just speak it. Give us the boldness that comes from knowing you. Help us to turn our world upside down with the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray.